The Gist is brought to you by Sherry's Berries. Fresh berries dipped in chocolate starting at just $19.99 are a great holiday gift. Order now and use the promo code GIST to double your berries for just $10 more. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. Click on the microphone at the top right corner and use the code GIST. And by Bonobos. Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit. For a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order at bonobos.com slash gist. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash gist. Discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better-fitting wardrobe can make. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, December 15th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. GOP debate tonight. One thing that you're going to hear is the complaint that Barack Obama refuses to call it Islamic Jihad. Refuses to say what it is. Islamic terrorism, Islamic extremism. I'm of a couple minds on this. One, it is Islamic extremism. That's not wrong. The P ask ISIS what they're doing. They'll say we're doing it in the name of Islam. Take them at their word. To think of them as totally un-Islamic is probably not to understand them well. It's not why Barack Obama, however, doesn't call them Islamic Jihad. Now, why doesn't he? There are some ideas about why he doesn't do it. Rudy Giuliani wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, starts off by saying, hey, when I was prosecuting the mafia, I I called it the mafia. Not the best analogy. First of all, you're Italian. Second of all, it's not like there were 40 states who were getting ready to fight the mafia, but if you called it the mafia, you'd be a little pissed off. Giuliani, by the way, in that op-ed says the refusal to call it Islamic terrorism pretty much led to Trump saying we should round up the Muslims. Here, the failure to speak bluntly about Islamic terrorism opens the door to the vast generalizations that can steer the debate in totally counterproductive directions. The idea of excluding all Muslims is unworkable and legal dubious. Yeah, but it was Obama's fault. It was Obama's fault that Trump said that. So why shouldn't we call it? Well, there's something called diplomacy. I've talked to Fred Kaplan about this, but forget Fred Kaplan. I know it's hard to. He's indelible. Forget him for a second. Let's listen to what actual leaders in the Middle East say. Now, this is King Abdullah of Jordan. Now, if you think Gitmo's tough, Jordan does to suspected terrorists in a week, worse than what Gitmo has done to every terrorist since it's been open. All right. King Abdullah asked by Fareed Zakaria on CNN, hey, shouldn't we call this Islamic terrorism? What these people want is to be called extremist. I mean, they take that as a badge of honor. If you ask me, am I a moderate or an extremist? I'm a Muslim. Um, these people, in the terms that is being used more and more, these uh, in Arabic are called khawarij. These are, in a way, uh, uh, outlaws that are on the fringe of Islam. I think he's right. Another word is takfiri, which is an apostate. It would impress me if any of the Republicans use these terms. Hell, if anyone on stage shows me that you understand the difference between a Sunni and a Shiite, I will credit you for knowing more than the current frontrunner. On the show today, I spiel about exploding Iowa, not for reals, but as an idea in explaining who's going to be the Republican nominee. But first, perhaps you heard the force was about to awaken. Well, we will discuss what it has been dreaming about. That's right. We'll try to suss out the antecedents to George Lucas's vision. Try? There is no try. There is only do. Okay, Yoda, let's get to the interview. Christmas is a coming, and the goose is getting fat. 
Perhaps the goose has snuck some Sherry's berries. I hope not. These are not recommended for geese. What we know about the berries is this. We think they're good for the geese. They're certainly good for the gander. They're great for the people in their lives. They didn't even know they wanted Sherry's berries. But when they see the berries delivered, they will love them. They will love you. They come in a stay fresh package. They are dipped in dark and white and milk chocolatey deliciousness. And the price is amazing. You get these sweet, freshly dipped strawberries starting at $19.99. That is a 40% savings. They pass the savings along to the goose. Don't worry about the goose anymore. Worry about the people in your life who you're giving berries to. They're sprinkled with chocolate chips. Some have chopped nuts. There's the white chocolates, the drizzly kind. The berries are very big. You can't go wrong with the Sherry's berries. In fact, to the tune of double those berries for 10 bucks, why not? To get the deal, go to berries.com and use the special offer code GIST. You go there, if you go to the site, they have all these different kind of gifts that will appeal to anyone who you have to buy a gift for. I will list some of them. Snowman brownie pops, chocolate dipped peppermint cookies, cheesecake bites. All right, here's the only way to get this amazing offer. Sherry's Berries, starting at $19.99. Visit berries.com. I'm going to spell it for you. B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. And click on the microphone in the top right-hand corner and type in GIST. So go to berries.com, click on the microphone, and type in GIST. Order them today. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there was a movie that plucked references from movies a longer time ago in a galaxy, or at least, yeah, pretty much a galaxy further away. We're talking about Kurosawa and Sergio Leone, and I find your lack of knowledge of the damn busters disturbing. Star Wars was not just a groundbreaking piece of cinema. It was a pastiche. It was modeled after just basically everything that flitted across George Lucas's consciousness in Modesto, California in the 1950s. Forrest Wickman wrote about this for Slate. I think there's a new movie opening up this weekend or something. Is that right, Forrest? I think I've heard of it. I think I hear the force is going to awaken. So what they, what we might not realize, maybe some people don't realize, is to what extent Star Wars, this wholly original piece of cinema, was informed by movies that came before it. So what were the big ones? Yeah, I mean, I think now we think of the original movie as being the basis for the five now becoming six movies that have followed since, plus the countless books, the TV series, the video games, the lunchboxes, et cetera, et cetera. The seams of the, uh, in the movie have kind of receded, and we we... Uh, don't think about like, oh, why are they called Jedis? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, George Lucas was really into Kurosawa movies, specifically samurai movies or or samurai period pieces, which are called Jedi Geki. You know, why do they meet in a sort of Western looking cantina and fire, you know, have races to see who can draw first? Uh, That's kind of a Western thing. And Lucas specifically borrowed kind of a whole sequence from The Searchers. You mentioned The Dam Busters, which is pretty much almost shot for shot the uh, inspiration for the climax where they take down the Death Star. So there's a lot in there that was more obvious if you were a cinephile in 1977, but you know a lot of people these days grew up with Star Wars as a movie they watched as a kid. And maybe they watched those other movies second, or maybe they never watched them at all. But the Kurosawa mm-hmm. theme isn't just samurai, but... Hidden Fortress, so many themes from Hidden Fortress were taken from the movie, and I was really into Star Wars, and I went and I rented Hidden Fortress, the movie that Star Wars was based on, and it's disappointing if you come to it with that grandiose uh, conception. Yeah, I mean, it happens all the time that people identify single sources as, oh, George Lucas just ripped off Dune. 
George Lucas just just ripped off the old Kirby comics. Um, and, and you can draw a par- or, or Wizard of Oz and you can draw pretty complete parallels with those things. Or you can just like look at his notes and the early drafts. Yeah. And and just the movie itself, which includes a lot of pretty explicit references. The words Hidden Fortress, you know, appear in reference to the rebel base. And you say movie. Grand Moff Tarkin is gonna say it at some point. Do you know this? It's uh oh man, now you're really testing my Star Wars universe knowledge. I think it's it's Admiral Mahdi, okay. I believe is the name okay. of the guy who's gonna say it. And yeah, he starts saying, you know, we'll never find the rebels hidden fortress. Yeah. And then that's the moment that Darth Vader uses the force to start choking him. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, Lucas didn't really try to cover his tracks. There are a lot of uh, pretty clear references. Well, the, what, the other thing he did, is if you look at the notes and he made so many pages of notes about what this should be or that should be, there's a lot more that's explicitly that has an overlap with a text a source that he's borrowing from, and that falls away. Like Dune, for instance. There's a reference to the Han Solo doing the Kessel Run, Spice the Spice Mines of Kessel. Yep. Spice, I think Spice only comes up once there. No, but, you yep. know, in his notes, there's tons of stuff about Spice, which is all ripped off from Dune. Yeah. Or borrowed. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. I mean, you know, everybody, I think, draws a line in a slightly different place when you're talking about this stuff. You know, Tarantino stole the entire... Ezekiel monologue that Samuel L. Jackson gives in Pulp Fiction, which is not actually in the Bible. It's heavily modified from the Bible, but he didn't really modify it at all from the old, like, Sonny Chiba movie that he took it from. And I think people love Pulp Fiction. What did you find out about how truly influenced he was by Joseph Campbell? Mm-hmm. And the hero has how many faces? Was a that thousand? Faces? A thousand faces. Because mm-hmm. I remember he had PBS specials afterwards with George Lucas hosted it, and it was like it was in the era before Phantom Menace where we really suspected he might be a genius. We only got to see three movies. Mm-hmm. What a unbelievably fleshed out universe and so it seemed like wow it's so much deeper than we thought and in retrospect I got the impression he was just kind of attaching himself to something that made him seem smarter than he was I think he kind of just got lucky did he did he read that book and say I got to put the ideas of this book into the movie or was it like well I got some vague ideas about a movie where the characters are kind of stereotypes but look here's a book that justifies this he I mean he did read the book uh, before the movie came out. Some people have argued he sort of drank his own Kool-Aid a little bit. But essentially what happened is that he already had this space adventure movie that borrowed a little bit from Westerns, a little bit from Flash Gordon, a little bit from Samurai movies. And he was starting to make it a little more of a fairy tale. And then he realized, oh, my movie is really starting to follow all these steps when he read The Hero with a Thousand Faces. I'm just going to make it kind of follow these steps more cleanly. Mm -hmm. And so... The Princess Leia and Luke uh, Skywalker characters around that time became a little younger to match more the coming of age or fairy tale structure. And then he changed things in a slight way. But in no way did he, you know, start to write out the entire movie from the beginning as the monomyth or the hero's journey. And do you think that the Wizard of Oz overlap, which I think you only glancingly mentioned in the piece, Mm -hmm. but it's so present throughout. The Stranger from a Strange Land and the Tin Man is C-3PO and the the Jawas are the Munchkins and Chewbacca is the Cowardly Lion. Is it just that we know these movies better than any other movies and they have a lot of elements to it? Or or is it that was he at all influenced by Wizard of Oz or were they both influenced by the hero's journey? I can't imagine he wasn't subconsciously influenced. I think you can make analogies that are almost complete with much less lesser known 
movies and right. stories and stuff. So it follows I'm Hidden sure Fortress that was as much as in it there, follows. especially the Tin yeah. Man. I think of the Tin Man in relation to C-3PO. You can point to like they explicitly wanted C-3PO to look like the robot from Metropolis. Right. And before that, they sort of the character itself had sort of been modeled on the peasants from Seven, Seven Samurai. And so you can make a whole for, formula for how he created C-3PO that has nothing to do with Wizard of Oz. Right. And it might have entirely been how it happened or subconsciously on some level he may have been thinking of. Right. Or is the archetype with C-3PO, R2-D2, uptight skinny guy, funny fat guy. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people have it. pointed in the, in the original reviews, people were like, oh, they're just doing Abbott and Costello. Yeah. The, Laurel and Hardy. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he had more of a hand in the in numbers one, two, and three. Phantom Menace. With, did he direct? Fan. So me. so Lucas directed the original Star Wars right. in 1977. Uh, he did not uh, direct Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi, though he was often very much on set and looking over everything. But he did not like direct the actors, which he was terrible at and knew it. Uh, and then he directed all three of the prequels. Okay, three of the prequels, which range from disappointing to terrible, depending on who you are. With, was there less of the pastiche in there? Did he get away from drawing on other sources? Uh, a lot. I mean, he was referring back to old Star Wars movies, obviously more than he was in Star Wars. So there are more yeah. inside jokes and stuff. But, I mean, there's a lot that got caught from this essay, rightly, I'm not complaining, that referred to how he continued to reference some of the same movies in the prequels. So, for example, uh, he borrowed kind of the whole massacre sequence from the searchers for the massacre of Luke's family in Star Wars. In Attack of the Clones, he kind of borrows uh, the whole revenge sequence, a a specific part of the revenge narrative in the searchers uh, for you know, Anakin Skywalker's attack on, I think it's the, the Tusken Raiders. Yeah, some Tusken yeah Raiders. there are things like that. There's a shot from Hidden Fortress um, that appears almost exactly the same of, of the army kind of coming over the hill. That makes a lot of sense if you see them side by side that, that he borrowed for, um, I think it's Phantom Menace. So they, there was still some of that in there. I think there was... A little less. And I also don't... Don't tell me Jar Jar Binks had some Kurosawa roots. Please, no. <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. Uh, and, but I also, I mean, obviously you can steal and make references like crazy and still be a terrible filmmaker or still come out, come away unsuccessfully. Well, there's no such thing as originality, I don't think. I mean, what's a movie that's being praised as original? We could all find the influences. There's no such thing as someone who, at, in 2015, gets behind the camera, and I know Lucas didn't, and knows how to do all these things, knows how to speak in the modern vocabulary of someone who could watch film, who's not extremely influenced by film. So I find the question of, you know, where does this genius come from? Of course it's going to come from being extremely influenced by a lot of stuff. It's kind of like a a um, hip-hop versus folk singer-songwriter analogy, I think, is maybe one you can make, where a folk singer-songwriter is kind of ripping off Dylan or somebody like that, maybe a few other singer-songwriters mixed in, and then you have the Bomb Squad working for Public Enemy and just you know, combining this sample with that sample with this other sample and, and making something entirely new. And both, I think, we should all know by 2015 are great ways to make art. Forrest Wickman is Slate's senior editor in the culture section. His article, Star Wars is a Postmodern Masterpiece. Look, it is. He proves his point, but he does it really quite nicely with a lot of uh, GIFs and videos and screenshots. Thank you, Forrest. Thanks, Mike. Every guy wants to look his best, but few of us, and by us I mean I'm a guy who wants to look my best, but I don't want to put in the effort to maintain a stylish wardrobe. I don't want to even think all those thoughts in a row. Right? If you're thinking, am I putting in the effort to maintain a stylish wardrobe? You're definitely 
way overthinking the stuff you wear. So I want to talk about the stuff you wear. You'd like to look good, but it's an inconvenience. It's a hassle to go out and try to pick all that stuff. So you need a facilitator. And it would be good if the facilitator had a really cool name where every other letter was O. Bonobos. Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit for any body type. For any fit preference, you go with the slim fit, you go with the opposite. Notice they don't call it fat fit. What do they call it? Call it like uh, roomy. You go with roomy. Yeah, you get roomy. It's not as stylish. You gotta go slim fit. Easily browse online through top quality styles in your home, and it's free and easy shipping and returns. Personable, it's fast. You can try clothes at any one of the 20 guide shops before you buy them. Bonobos offers a full line of stylish men's clothing like shirts and suits and pants and jeans and jackets and outerwear and ties and belts and shoes and golf clothes. Look stylish, look comfortable, and you can pick from slim standard or tall. For a limited time, new customers get 20% off the first order when they go to bonobos.com slash gist. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash gist for your 20% off and to discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better fitting wardrobe can make. And now the spiel, let's explode Iowa. Not really, but the caucuses, that could take it on the chin. The caucuses are held out as, oh, the first time we get a real vote and not just a poll. I'm here to say the polls are much better. Just ask President Gephardt, Harkin, Huckabee, and Santorum. And there was this also ran named Bill Clinton, who got 2.8% of the vote in Iowa. Yeah, Clinton came in fourth. Am I cherry picking? I am not. Let's look at the Republican side. I did leave out the Times, the Iowa caucus, like a blind evangelical squirrel, got it right. Gerald Ford, who was an incumbent, Bob Dole, and both George Bushes won Iowa and went on to be the nominees. But at the time of the Iowa caucus, there are other bits of information, like polls of people in the other 49 states. And those polls were right seven out of the last eight times. The results of Iowa... Sometimes they're negatively correlated to who gets the nomination. Sometimes they're slightly positively correlated. But overall, add it all together, there is no statistically significant correlation between who wins Iowa and who gets to be the nominee. Now, everyone who's paying even a little bit of attention knows this or should know it. Yet there is an incentive to maybe pretend you don't know it. Here is George Stephanopoulos on This Week, This Week. And we come on the air this week to a major shakeup in the race for the White House. A brand new poll just released by the Des Moines Register shows Ted Cruz blowing by Donald Trump in the key first state of Iowa. There you see the numbers. Cruz now at 31 percent, 10 points ahead of Trump. The third outsider in this race, Dr. Ben Carson, falling hard from his first place showing in October. He joins us live in a moment. But we begin with more on this stunning poll and a defining week in this campaign from John Carl at the White House. Good morning, John. I counted four untruths or exaggerations in that sentence. Major, stunning, defined, and blowing by. Even if Iowa mattered, which it doesn't, we're exploding Iowa here, but even if it mattered, the poll has to be taken in the context of other polls. That one that Stephanopoulos was breathing into a paper bag about, all right? So the Fox poll before the Cruz with a 10-point lead poll showed Cruz with a two-point lead, and a Quinnipiac poll, which came after that one, showed Trump with a one-point lead. Since November, there have been nine credible polls collected by Real Clear Politics. Six show Trump ahead, 
One shows crews up by two, one shows crews up by five, and that one, the one Stephanopoulos needed to break his safe word out for, that one showed crews up by ten. Lucky for you, these numbers don't matter. Do not commit them to memory. You know why? Because Iowa doesn't matter. Let us further explode Iowa. Last time around, Rick Santorum won Iowa. Well, we think he won Iowa. We actually don't know if he won Iowa. This crucial early battleground state, this predictor of the most powerful man in the free world, we don't actually know who won Iowa because they lost the votes of eight precincts. Whoopsie. Wait, doesn't our democracy depend on Iowa? No, it doesn't. Santorum garnered a little under 30,000 votes. Wait, I thought Iowans were crazy for politics. I thought they fiercely guarded their status as the first in the nation. Well, if that were true, maybe more than 20% of registered Republicans would come out to vote, but four out of five stay home. Maybe they already know that Iowa doesn't matter. Also, did you know this? That the votes in the Iowa caucus, unlike other states, aren't really votes. They're votes to who goes to a state convention, and those votes are the ones that become actual delegates in the Republican nominating process. Let me quote from the New York Times. At the party caucuses, a straw vote is taken and delegates to the county convention are selected. These results are not binding on elected delegates, but the delegates usually feel obligated to follow the wishes of caucus goers. So did that help winner Mike Huckabee in 2008? It did not. He won Iowa and wound up getting zero delegates out of Iowa, even though he won those crucial, crucial caucuses. Let's talk numbers, sheer numbers. Iowa has 30 delegates at stake. The caucus winner gets a percent of the delegates. Although, as we've shown, this is often ignored and they don't even get any delegates. So let's say Ted Cruz does wind up by that one poll that George Stephanopoulos had the EpiPen out for, right? And let's say he gets that percentage. Let's say he gets a third of the Iowa delegates. Ten delegates. Not bad. Double digits, yet you still get to use the 12 delegates or underlane. But how many delegates are there? I can answer that. 2,472. So Cruz, if he wins by the margin he's ahead by now, will have locked up 0.4% of the delegates. Ooh. Let's use a sports comparison. In the last Super Bowl, the Patriots on offense ran 71 plays. Seattle ran 60 plays. There were 10 punts, a few kickoffs. All in all, about 150 plays in the Super Bowl. If the Republican nominating procedure were a football game, were the Super Bowl, it would be like judging the winner of the Super Bowl less than two plays into the Super Bowl. Baseball, last year in Major League Baseball, the average team pitched 146 pitches a game. So gleaning information from the Iowa caucuses is like saying you're able to predict a baseball game three and a half pitches in. Two balls and one strike to Escobar here on top of the first. Samarja working from the windup. And I think the Royals are going to win. Wait, Bob, don't you want to see if he reaches base? Why bother? Escobar has a major swing and a stunning new stance that has him blowing by fastballs. Okay, okay, you say. The analogy to a team sport, not precise. The Republican nomination is more like a race. It's, it's a destination, and you need 1,237 delegates to win the race. That's one more than half of the overall total. Get it? All right. So the Kentucky Derby's a race. This year, American Farrow covered the Churchill Downs mile and a quarter to win the Kentucky Derby. He led from the start, if you remember. They're in the gate. And they're off in the Kentucky Derby. 
An American Pharaoh got away very well from that outside post. Dortmund did too. So American Pharaoh's winning time was two minutes and three seconds, 3.02 seconds. So let's take whoever the Iowa winners is. Remember, let's, uh, we said his hall was going to be 10 delegates. So Ted Cruz, he won his 10 delegates and he needs 1,237 to lock up the nomination. How does this equate to the Kentucky Derby? Here's how much of the Derby is equivalent to winning the Iowa caucuses. Are you ready? And they're... Not even and they're off. Just... And they're... Hey, let's be generous, though. Let's say Ted Cruz cleaned up and he won every delegate in Iowa. Here's the Kentucky Derby equivalent. And they're off in the Kentucky Derby. Of course, if anyone won all the delegates, it would be logical to infer that the candidate had a lot of strength, strength that would translate outside of Iowa. But the thing is, the media doesn't even have to do this to itself, make itself look stupid by exaggerating the importance of Iowa. New Hampshire is a mere eight days after Iowa. Nevada's two weeks later, South Carolina's four days after that. If you could wait an entire month after Iowa, and it is the month of February, so it's a short month, we get a really good indication because there are 624 delegates up for grabs on March 1st. Now, you tell me who has a lot of delegates by then, it means something. If you want to wait a couple of extra weeks, oh my gosh, Florida, March 15th, 99 delegates, and they're winner take all. So that's a real place to point to and say, let's wait till March 15th. Beware the Ides of March. A two, Carlet. The coverage of presidential politics is often derided as being too much of a horse race. That might be true, but what I want is for it to be covered as well as a horse race. I played the sound of a horse race. Track announcer Larry Kalmus did a really good job during the Kentucky Derby. He was excited, but he wasn't inaccurate. He was suspenseful, but he wasn't misleading. I don't know if this particular presidential race will come down to the wire, but it is demonstrably foolish to act as if all depends on how they get out of the starting gate. And that's it for today's show. Producer Andrea Salenzi and Wedge Antilles are the only known survivors of the battles of Yavin, Hoth, and Endor. Executive producer Andy Bowers made the Kessel Run in six parsecs, which is weird because parsecs is a unit of length, not time. The gist, you thought this thing smelled bad on the outside. Umperu, Deperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening.